Thank you, Matt, for taking us to the throne. And thank you, Danny, for the invitation to be here, and thank you all for coming. My theme is the essential and prominent place of preaching in worship. Or to be more precise, not just why is the Word of God central or prominent in worship, but why historically and today does this peculiar kind of communication called preaching have such a prominent place in worship? Almost any place you go in the Protestant world, about half of any given worship service is devoted to this phenomenon called preaching. Why is that? Is there a biblical warrant for that? That's where we're going to go from the scriptures. But before I begin to unpack the specifics from a text that I'll read with you in a moment, let me give you four statements to try to help you feel the weight of this that I do, and perhaps help those of you who may feel that it might not be as immediately relevant for you since you're not a preacher or don't plan to be one, nevertheless could find it, I hope will find it, enormously important. So four, four statements that if you agreed with these, you would understand why this topic has such weight for me. Number one, Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and raised from the dead by the glory of the Father to vindicate his saving work and reigning at the right hand of the Father is the only hope of the eternal happiness of every single person in the world who has lived or ever will live. Number two, the church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and bulwark of that glorious truth. 1 Timothy 3.15. If you needed a text for the first one, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me, and if you don't come to the Father, you won't be eternally happy. Happy, you'll be eternally miserable. Third, the vitality and power of the church, which feeds her mission, her saving mission in the world, rises and falls with the experience of the glory of God in corporate worship, week in and week out. The vitality and power of this church, which is the pillar and bulwark of that truth of Christ, rises and falls with the experience of the glory of God in corporate worship week in and week out. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and therefore greatly to be praised. So the greatness of the Lord 
issues in the greatness of his praise in worship where the people sing a new song to the Lord like we just did. You cannot commend that the world sing a new song to the Lord if you're not singing to the Lord. Therefore, the vitality of that experience week in and week out of connecting with the living God in his glorious presence is where the mission and the church and the energy for mission rises and falls. And the fourth statement is, preaching the Word of God is designed by God and appointed by God to be an essential and prominent part of that weekly experience of the glory of God in worship. Those are my four statements, which means that if preaching as worship and in worship dies, worship will die. And if worship dies, the church will die. And if the church dies, the mission will die. And if the mission dies, people die. And if people die, the mission of Christ aborts. And God will not allow the the mission of Christ to abort. And therefore, he will not allow, allow preaching to die. And preaching is prominent and essential in worship. And what I want to do is talk about why that is. How do we know that is? I think most of us entered the ministry assuming that we would have a job to preach. And the longer I've been at it and the more I've tried to teach it, the more it has seemed clear to me that it isn't to be taken for granted, but to be warranted, justified, grounded in the Bible so that you give, give an account to your people why you do what you do. And it's not just tradition that 30 to 40 plus minutes of this service called worship should be devoted to this peculiar form of speech called preaching. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to this very familiar passage with me, I'm going to go to 2 Timothy 3.16 and read through chapter 4, verse 5. Because here, more clear than anywhere else, you get the connection between the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God, and I believe it will also become clear that it is especially tailored for worship. So I'll read 2 Timothy 3.16 to 4. All Scripture is breathed, by, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when they will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, 
They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So at the middle of that passage, verse 2 of chapter 4, stands this massive command, preach the word. And my, my question is why? Why is it prominent, and why is it prominent particularly in worship? It breaks down into two questions. Why is the Word of God prominent, and then why is this form of the Word of God preaching prominent? It is possible in a worship service not to preach, but to just read the Bible for 30 minutes. And would that not honor the Scriptures very highly if week in and week out no one preached and we just read the Bible for 30 to 40 minutes? God's Word would be sanctified and honored. Why don't we do it that way? Or we could have discussions for 30 or 40 minutes over the Word of God. Read, read a text and, and have the, the priests, namely the believers, deal with it in their circles and apply it to their lives and experience the falling of the Holy Spirit on those little circles of discussion and, and be transformed into the image of God and go out mighty as an army. Why wouldn't we do it that way? Or you might show the Jesus film or you might patch together a, a series of movie clips with a little biblical commentary in between. Or you might have a drama on the platform to embody a biblical truth. Why preaching? That's my question. So first, let's deal with the first question. Why the Word of God is so prominent? And it will lead directly into the question, why this form of the Word of God called preaching? And what is it? The first reason that the Word of God is prominent in worship is that God has chosen to reveal himself as the Word and by the Word. And you cannot have any worship where God is not revealing himself. So he's chosen to reveal himself as the Word and by the Word. In the beginning was the Word. That's a description of the Son of God. He came among us took on flesh, but first he was the Word, and he was the Word before there was any created being to speak to. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's before there was anything else but God, and therefore he's called the Word in the intra-Trinitarian relationships, and that's about as ultimate as it can get. So he reveals himself as the Word ultimately and eternally. He bears a relationship to the Father as Word. That's amazing. And he reveals himself by the Word. A text that came into my ministry several years ago late confirming things, but more clearly expressing things that I was trying to see and say is 
1 Samuel 3.21 that goes like this. A little work for you Hebrew scholars here. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Now, the word appeared there is the nifal of the Hebrew word ra'ah, which means to see. So the passive of see, translate it that way. The Lord was seen, appeared, was seen again at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. <laughs> you see with your ears. That's amazing. That's profound. He showed up and was seen by the word. So, if worship is a seeing and a savoring of the appearing of the glory of God, the word is central. 1 Samuel 3, 21. Or our text, 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So this word by which he appears is now called writings. All these scriptures, these writings are breathed out by God, which is why when they are faithfully opened, he stands forth. He appears in worship to be adored. He is felt and honored and loved and glorified as he appears in the Word of God. And we see him with the eyes of our heart, which is why Paul prayed that way in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. So, in sum, the first two answers to why the Word not yet preaching, but just the Word is central in worship, is that God reveals Himself as the Word, and God reveals Himself by the Word, and the self-revealing of God is at the very heart of the response of the soul to God in worship. Here's a third reason why the Word is so central in worship. Worship is also the response of the mind and the heart to God's work in the world. He speaks and He works in the world, and His works are done by His Word. And so, if we are to see a work of God and respond with gratitude and admiration to the work, we should know the work was brought about by the Word. Hebrews 11, the world was made by the Word of God. You look out those windows, the Word of God did those trees. God spoke, and this day existed and stays in being. He upholds the world by the Word of His power. And when Jesus was on the earth doing his mighty works, awakening worship in the world, he did it all by his word. He calmed seas by his word, fevers 
cooled by his word, demons cast out by his word, sins forgiven by his word, blind seeing by his word, dead raised. Lazarus, come forth. How did that happen? The word created life. And therefore, wherever there is worship in response to God's mighty works, it is owing to the Word of God. And therefore, the Word of God is central to worship. Here's a fourth reason why the Word of God is central to worship. God goes on today in your life and in your churches doing his works by his word. So back at our text, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped, empowered, suited, fitted for every good work. Any good work that happens in the heart and the body of a saint is readied and equipped and brought forth by the Word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. If there's any work of holiness anywhere within sight, it's owing to the Word of God. God. So if worship is an ongoing response of gratitude to everything God is doing in our day, not just in Scripture history, but in our day, therefore the Word is central to that response of worship. It's always been this way that God does His transforming work by the Word. Blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the instruction, the Torah of the Lord, and on this Torah he meditates day and night. What's the result? He's like a tree planted by streams of water, brings forth its fruit, leaf doesn't wither. Everybody's withering in this culture, but not those planted by the Word. Sending roots down into the Word, drinking the Word in meditation every day. They're green and fruitful in the middle of the drought. So in an ongoing way, everything good that comes in your life that's eternally significant comes from this stream called the Word. Or, that was Psalm 1, Hebrews 4 The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts of the heart. The Word is God's agent for conviction and judgment and penetration. God does that in our worship services by the Word of God, and worship happens when it penetrates that deeply or as I've already quoted John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word is central in vital communion with the living God called worship. Here's one last reason. There can be no worship 
where there is no life. Where does life come from? Everybody's born dead. Where do they get life? Where did you get your life? How did life, spiritual, eternal life, come into your dead soul? And the answer is 1 Peter 1.23. goes like this. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. I believe the imperishable seed is the Holy Spirit and His instrument through which He penetrated your soul was your mother or father or Billy Graham or some pastor or some campus worker spoke and the Word of God made life happen. You can't explain it any more than a baby can explain coming into being. You just loved him. You trusted him. You weren't yesterday. You are today. Something happened. It's called life. It's called new birth. And it happened for every one of you, without exception, who is born again by the Word of God. And no other way. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration here. The Word must be spoken must be heard, and it penetrates, and it makes alive. So for those five reasons and many more, all vital, Christ-exalting, authentic, God-glorifying communion with the living God called worship is saturated with the Word of God. Now, that's the first question. The second question is, okay, got that? Why preaching? Why preaching? There are a lot of ways to hear the Word of God besides preaching. Read it every day on your own. You should. Why preaching? So, a very simple answer comes in our text, and then I'll take you to a deeper answer. Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verses 1 and 2, he has just heralded the inspiration of all of Scripture, and now he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. So it's clear that Paul means for preaching to be prominent for this young minister of the word who's trying to rightly handle the word of God. And I'm going to infer more. I'm going to infer from this text that this is more than saying preaching is central to evangelistic preaching on the street corner or in the synagogue or in the Areopagus or in a stadium, which is true, but that's not what this is talking about. 
And I say that because in verse 2, it speaks of reproof, rebuke, exhortation, patience in teaching. This is a church setting. Or chapter 3 speaks of those who are going to walk away from this and go get some teachers who will scratch their ears the way they want to be scratched. This is a setting of ongoing presentation of the word to a people. That's where he says, preach. Most of the commands to preach or the illustrations of preaching in the New Testament are evangelistic. There are only very few, like this, where preaching is located in the church. That's why I chose this text. So I'm arguing that the command to preach in verse 2, preach the word, Timothy, is given in the context of having stated you've got an inspired word. It's good for rebuke and ongoing teaching. Some of your people aren't going to like it. They're going to walk and get some other teachers to scratch their ears. But you be faithful and preach. That's the context of this paragraph here. Now, let me try to go beneath that. Why would that be? I mean, the first answer to why preaching is the Bible says so. That's enough. But it helps. It really does help your soul to go beneath the Bible says so to why does the Bible say so. And that's not picky. The Bible loves to tell you why it says what it says. It's a thick book. If it only said what it said, it'd be a thin book. (laughs) It tells you why it says what it says, and that's most of the book. So it's good to take a few more minutes and say, why did it say that? Why do we do this? Why has the history of the Protestant church and way before the Protestant church devoted such a large share of the worship moment in the life of a corporate people to this thing called preaching? So I want to go down a level and then another level. So let's go down one level. There is biblical, historical precedent in the history of redemption for the way things developed. Just to show you what I mean. Nehemiah chapter 8, you're familiar with this, I'll just read it to you. Chapter 8, verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting their hands, and they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground, and the Levites helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places, and they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, there's a setting where the hands are lifted, the faces are to the ground, the people are worshiping, and the Levites, I mean, you got tens of thousands of people, the Levites are all scattered around opening the law to the people in the context of lifted hands in worship, revealing God and helping them understand the content of the book in worship. So there you got an early Jewish paradigm which was preserved right into the New Testament, and I don't doubt was strongly influential in the way the earliest Christians did their worship. I'm not a historian. I won't base anything ultimate on that, but let me give you an example or two. In the New Testament, Luke 4, Jesus comes to the synagogue, right? Jesus came to Nazareth. He entered the synagogue, as was his custom, on the Sabbath, a worship day. And he read from 
the appointed reading, the prophet Isaiah. He laid it down, and then he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he begins to open the scripture in a similar pattern. People gathered before the face of God, word of God read, a visiting preacher starts to say amazing things about the word. Or you go to the book of Acts, Pisidian Antioch, Acts chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. On the Sabbath day, Paul and his crowd went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul preached the most God-centered sermon in the Bible, as I judge. So the first reason underneath the Bible says so is there's this history of pattern of, of the people of God gathered in worship, word of God read, some appointed spokesman opening the word in the context of worship for the people to grasp it and be affected by it. Let me give you another reason. And this one is the, is the last one in the climax. Worship is a double experience. I mean, for, for my argument now to make any sense to you, you'll have to get this and agree. So let me try to persuade you. <laughs> Worship is a double experience. It is a, a seeing, a spiritual seeing, apprehending, understanding, according to the truth of God according to his word. So it's a mental activity. It's an activity of the mind to apprehend, construe the meaning of sentences coming out of the preacher's mouth or as they're read from the book and the mind is construing meaning and if it's construing it according to the author's intention, it's true and that is an essential, not an optional, an essential aspect of worship. Where that is missing, nothing else is worship. But that's just not the essence of worship. That's precondition. The other aspect, the double aspect of worship, is that the heart, the soul, responds savoring that truth. So it's seen and savored, understood and loved, reflected on, and then delighted in. And those two together constitute authentic worship. Now, let me read this from Jonathan Edwards, who for me has been so massively helpful in grasping these things. This is perhaps the most important paragraph I ever read in the writings of Jonathan Edwards. It comes from his miscellanies. God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One by appearing to their understanding. Two, by communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only 
by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. That may be the most important sentence I ever read outside the Bible. I'll read it again. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. So how does God get glory from a worshiping people, which is what worship is for, to reflect his worth? He gets that glory by being seen truly and enjoyed duly. And if this joy is missing, Edward says, there may be some accurate reflection of God's character in right statements over here, but his worth is dimly perceived in this congregation because there's zero emotional awakening to the infinite value of God. So for God's value and his glory and his beauty to be truly reflected, there's got to be this yes of the heart, not just Correct of the mind. Now, if that's an accurate statement, that's what you've got to agree with for the argument to work. If that's accurate, if worship is both right knowing and right feeling toward God, where the absence of the knowing would produce emotionalism and the absence of the feeling would produce intellectualism, And these isms, we all know, we've all tasted them. We know the kind of churches where we've been where this is totally head and totally emotion. If that's accurate, that God-honoring worship is those two things, my bottom line argument for preaching is that God designed and appointed preaching precisely to have the unique place of doing both of those. Doing them and awakening them. That's what I think preaching is. So preaching has a a double-pronged reality that corresponds to those two dimensions of worship. Preaching is Something more than explaining the Bible. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Okay, now help from the Greek people. The word, not didasko, not katangelo, not euangelo. Tell me. Well, you don't have your Greeks in front of you. That's okay. Keruso. What's that? It's the work of a herald. It's the work of a town crier before there was internet, television, radio, telegraph, anything. A town crier comes into a city with a scroll from the king. The king has a message for every city in the realm. Gathers the people in the town square. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Thus saith the king. For all those who have been in rebellion against him, he has decreed by the death of his son that there will be an amnesty for everyone who will drop their weapons and swear fealty to the king forever. 
Yay! Everybody goes, yay! Because they've got relatives who've been rebelling against the king. And now there's an amnesty. The king's not going to kill anybody who will just lay down the weapons and come. Hear ye, hear ye. That's what a kerux does. And that's what Timothy is supposed to do. I'm arguing that preaching has about it a character of communication that corresponds with the worth and the weight of what is being said. This, this town crier is supposed to embody what the king's heart is for this people. Now, I call that exaltation with a U, not an A. Exaltation with an A is what you do in worship. Exaltation is when you go vertical. You're, one's a transitive verb, one's an intransitive, but that doesn't help you very much, probably. <laughs> you know the difference. I'm talking exaltation. So to me, as I understand preaching here, it is the town crier's exaltation, exaltation over the truth that he's reading to the people to embody something of what the king has done for them in providing this news. Which leaves just one little piece. A simple person in the town square might say, did, excuse me, did I hear you right that you said you're supposed to swear fealty to the king? I don't know that word. Fealty. And the town cry says, yes, I said, I said fealty. It means trust him. Embrace him as your king. No longer be disloyal. And he exposits fealty. Because the people need to understand the good news. Otherwise, they won't be able to worship the king. And so my definition of preaching is expository exaltation. Because those two aspects correspond with these two worship dimensions. I need to understand something of what you're saying. I need to understand God. I can't worship a God. I have no idea anything about who he is or what he's done. So I need to understand. Talk to me. Explain to me. And please don't do that in a way that doesn't correspond to the infinite worth of it. Exult over the word. Which is why I will never let our worship leaders talk about worshiping followed by preaching. Are you kidding me? What do you think I'm doing here? If I'm not loving my Jesus in front of you, if I'm not making much of Jesus here, if I'm not exalting him and lifting up his word here, if this isn't worship, what is it? So worship services, worship moments should be all one glorious thing from, from introduction and welcome to benediction. There should be this vertical, glorious God responding, God exalting way that sings and reads and prays and confesses and preaches because that's what worship is, knowing and feeling God appropriately, and that's what preaching is designed to be. And I think preaching is unique in that regard. And that's why for all of these centuries, God has ordained that worship services should have a prominent and essential place for preaching. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I pray now for those in this room who will never be preachers, that they might now know what to pray toward, what kind of pastor to call, how to serve on a worship committee that would help bring to pass these things. And I pray for those who are dreaming, praying, hoping, studying toward the ministry of preaching and pastoring. Oh God, may they thrill at what they're about to be and do. It is a glorious calling and worship is the end of all things. And so I pray that you would establish this school, establish this faculty, every branch of it, in order to deepen people's grasp of the Word of God and to intensify the giftings of preaching that Word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.